Welcome to the Story Geek Show. On today's show, I will be reacting to the latest Stranger Things trailer for season four. And then I'll be also reacting and digging deeper into episode three of Moon Knight. And I'll also be, there's a lot of stuff on today's show. I'll also be comparing Matt Reeves' deleted Joker interrogation scene from the Batman to Christopher, Nolan, Christopher Nolan's Joker interrogation scene from The Dark Knight. So we're going to cover a lot of territory today. We're going from Marvel to DC to all the way over to Stranger Things. It'll be a really fun show. I will be talking spoilers about episode three of Moon Knight, so I will save that one for last. Uh, but in the meantime, I'll react to the Stranger Things trailer first, then we'll get into Batman, and then I'll save Moon Knight for later. I'm Jay Shear, co-writer of Death of a Bounty Hunter and Time Slingers, and this is the Story Geek Show. Let's just uh, jump in here to Stranger Things. Like a lot of shows, Stranger Things uh, had a lot to deal with in terms of the pandemic. So it has been a while since we've seen anything related to Stranger Things um, and that whole crew. But we did get a brand new trailer for season four. So let's watch that together and talk a little bit more about it. I have seen it a couple times already, um, but uh, I'll be reacting to it in depth now. Go ahead and add this to the stream here so that we can see it and uh and then we will we will check it out here now this just came out on tuesday so this is a brand new deal and it is pretty fascinating so let's just let's just start it out here i'm going to pause every once in a while throughout this and for those of you listening i will describe a little bit what's going on you know as this trailer starts out we see basically what was the the uh ruined transportation device or teleportation device that would open up the upside down and allow people to pass through the upside down going either way. And what we're seeing at the beginning of this trailer is that has been ruined. And we know that was ruined at the end of episode, or at the end of uh, season three. So we know that that happened already. And now we're just getting sort of a little bit of an update here. You've broken everything. And then we have Snoke. <laughs> We have Snoke talking talking to our Stranger Things crew. Uh, I don't know who this person is that's talking, but uh, it definitely sounds like Snoke from Star Wars. <laughs> so we'll see. You're suffering. And he says, you know, you've ruined everything. Your suffering is almost at an end. And I think that this shot is fantastic. This, this really creepy grandfather clock in the middle of a room Stranger Things really knows how to do the creepy things really, really well. And there's a callback to it later in this trailer, and it's really, really good. It's almost at an end. And there's a shot of somebody who we don't know who that is quite yet. And this, as always, will be airing on Netflix. Dear Billy, I don't know if you can even hear this. There's Billy's sister talking to him at his gravesite. Everything's been a total disaster. And Billy was like a problem, but obviously his sister really you know, loved him, so she's um, still still emoting there. I'm gonna go back a little bit because uh, I like this shot of them getting out of the car here. Um, obviously, Steve is one of the is one of the coolest characters. You always, I don't know. I thought Steve was going to end up being a jerk, but end up, Steve ends up being awesome. I wonder if they realized that um, partway through the series. Like, no, Steve's actually kind of awesome, so we need to turn him into a cool character. Um, Dustin is here as well. Um, and then I don't actually recognize this character, so this might be a new character, or maybe I just don't recognize one of the existing characters. Total disaster. 
Things have not been going well, according to Billy's sister. I do think it's a little bit inappropriate that the one African American kid on the in the show has to be the basketball player. I don't. That's that. That seems a little stereotypical. Stranger Things seems a little stereotypical. For a while, we tried to be happy. And they say she's saying that they tried to be happy for a little while. Love the '80s clothes. That's cool. Um, that's always a good throwback with these things. Is to see the '80s. I was. I'm a kid of the '80s, so uh, seeing that stuff is really fun. Um, and then he has his thinking cap on. That's pretty clever. Pretty clever. Dustin's great. Uh, let's see. You got 11. And they feel kind of out of place, obviously. Will. We saw Will there. We don't see a lot of Will in this trailer. That's like one of the only times we see Will in this trailer is in this scene where he's walking down the hallway with 11. Um, and obviously, she's trying to make friends, and, and she doesn't seem to be doing a very good job of that, or at least people think that she's weird or something. Impossible. general teenage angst now this is what i was talking about when i said there's a throwback or a callback to the grandfather clock and this is a gorgeous shot right here um so this is again billy's sister i do not remember billy's sister's name off the top of my head but she is looking down the hallway and seeing the clock that we saw from the haunted mansion type of thing um which is really cool now she's obviously here at night this might be a dream we're really not sure and then we come in and we bring in this like 80s hair band like uh what do you call that? The ballad. It's like a rock ballad that they, <laughs> they bring in here, which is interesting. And this looks like it's actually a shot of the Russian facility that we saw at the end of season three. So in season three, we 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 part of the storyline there, if you'll remember, is that they had the Americans were trying to tap into the upside down, and so were the Russians. And this looks like it's the Russian facility at this point. Because obviously we see all these soldiers, it's snowy, that looks a lot like where the Russians were at the end of season three. And then we have Hopper. Now what's so funny to me is that they kind of, I felt like they were trying to say like, well, is Hopper alive or is he dead? Um, and then they just went full into like, he's, he's alive. Just everybody knows he's alive. I don't remember if we saw a shot of him at the very end of season three or not. I don't think we did, but I could be wrong about that. In the comments, let me know if you uh, you remember that part. Right, we located you guys far from Hawkins. And then we're getting this scene of like trying to show the normalcy of these teenagers, or these kids, but they're obviously dealing with a lot of trauma. And the voice we're hearing is we're going to see him in a minute, but it's one of the one of the American scientists slash government scientists talking to Eleven. And there's one of the only shots of Will's older brother. So that's that's interesting, too. We got to see him. There's a helicopter shot here. But uh, this guy is saying that a war is coming. So we don't know if that means that a war is coming between the Russians and the United States. Or we don't know if he's saying there's a, a war coming between, like, the Upside Down and the, the our world, you know. It's coming. And there's this is the house here. very much in the eye of the storm. I don't have my powers. And then Eleven says she doesn't have her powers. I don't know how to say this other than just to say it. Without you, we can't win this war. There's always a cafe that looks like this in a science fiction <laughs> series. There's always a cafe that looks like this. And I always want to eat at a cafe that looks like this. And I legitimately can never find a cafe that looks like this. This also, by the way, looks like the cafe. This is a really deep cut. This also looks like the diner that is in 
uh, Road to Perdition. There's a scene where there's a diner in Road to Perdition, and um, this looks like almost the exact same location that this was filmed at. I'm sure it's probably not, can't but it looks just like war. it. And then this guy tells Eleven that they can't win the war without her. And this this shot here is interesting because it really gives like horror movie vibes. We've got the bats flying around. We've got the mansion here. Um, obviously, Stranger Things is playing with science fiction. It's playing with um, horror, and it's playing with you know '80s. So those things are all combined into every season that we've seen thus far. See you on the other side. On the other side. And Steve says to um, Mike's sister, "I'll see you on the other side." And we don't know what that means. Are they going into the upside down at this point? Maybe. Now, this looks like they might be in the upside down right there in that shot. So that's kind of an interesting interesting deal. And then we're going to see the Russian area again. I was convinced I was put here for some other reason. Maybe I can still help. And this looks like they're putting the prisoners in an arena to fight with one of the monsters from the upside down, which is really interesting and terrifying. <laughs> the last thing I do. And of course, Hopper's looking super badass with his shaved head. People say Hawkins is cursed. Call back to Eleven. And then a new character that I don't think we've seen before. And then that shot is a weird shot to me. Like, so she's there, she's back in front of Billy's grave she's back in front of billy's grave and she's like rising up into the sky and that's a it's an interesting shot because and this is billy's sister and it seems like she's levitating and and steve and dustin and i'm forgetting that i'm blanking on the kid the other kid's name um i knew these kids names like by heart a little while back um they are like shocked by this they're like whoa what's going on so I don't know if this has to do with the upside down. I don't know if she's gaining some of Eleven's powers because Eleven says she doesn't have her powers. So is is Billy's little sister, who I also don't remember her name, is she you know gaining Eleven's powers or is she being controlled by somebody else? We don't know. And then <laughs> there's this bizarre shot of this guy on top of this. He looks like he's in the upside down. And he's got a guitar and he's just playing a guitar riff. <laughs> And then there's a bunch of little shots of the upside down, them traveling. It looks like somebody's going to rescue Hopper from Russia so that they can bring him back, which is likely where the show will go. Um, and then we see these like shots of the upside down, which are pretty insane. Um, let me see if I can capture some of them here. Um, you know, Eleven looks like she gets her powers back uh, really quickly there. That was the their buddy uh, in the plane here. That was their buddy who was really a funny, really a funny character who was kind of like almost like a, like a conspiracy theorist type of a guy. Um, I want to try and get this shot of the um, upside down here. There's a lot of shots going really fast. Oh, yeah. This one is the one I was thinking of. There, there's a, This is definitely the most hell like that the upside down has looked like. And I can't tell which character that is, um, but I'm sure you know it doesn't look like they're in a good place and then we've got the eye of sauron back in the background so you know call back on you know we're doing other other homages to other films uh, and then then that hand that we just saw right there uh let me see if i can capture it here. yeah there we go so the kids are running it's not the same kid i don't think different colored jacket it looks like they're running toward a portal probably to go back to the real world and then this is 
likely some sort of monster from the upside down if not the character who we're about to see it's time person says it's time and there we have this i mean who knows what this character is i think there is a chance that this character is uh some sort of demon some sort of devil that is actually inhabiting billy's body because we, there's this call back to billy at the billy's grave and i'm just not sure why they're going there as much but i'm wondering if you know billy got sort of uh for lack of a better word he was sort of being possessed or something relative to the upside down and i'm wondering if this is just some uh spiritual creature of some type some science fiction type of possession that is happening to billy and he's showing up as this character Then we got the always the super cool Stranger Things logo, and then we're getting Volume One is May twenty seventh, and Volume Two is July first. So I know that there's going to be a total of five um, actual seasons, and then it's over after that. So I don't know if this is like season four, which is May twenty seventh, and then season five which is july 1st that could be the case i know that they probably want to film as much as possible because these kids are getting really old and so it's going to be less and less believable that they're kids um but yeah what did you think of what did you think of this trailer did you like this trailer did you not like this trailer um hit me up in the comments and let me know um also dale says that we never saw him but they referred to him at the end um, then we saw him in the first teaser. That's true. And it could be a D&D god, which is, by the way, a theme that's been going throughout the series, too. So science fiction, D&D, um, horror, and 80s. And that's basically what you get with uh, with with, Net with uh, Stranger Things on Netflix. So that was cool. I mean, I here's the thing. My favorite season was season one. And it was it was it was a smaller season. It was more of a throwback to the '80s stuff that I remember watching as a kid. It was not as bold and crazy and insane as what we got in the later seasons. I actually liked season one and then season three, second, and then season two. I thought was like maybe my third, third favorite. So what will we get more of here? I mean, we're definitely going bigger and broader um is that going to be better i'm not sure i mean season one was was pretty phenomenal season one was also a little like if you were if you were to kind of track it back i would say season one was not as fun as like let's say season three season three was really really fun this look it looks like it's going to have elements of fun mixed in but sometimes that fun can detract from some of the horror but i don't mind the fun because it breaks up the horror a little bit more which is kind of nice um so you know we'll see how that goes but let me know what your comments are about the uh, trailer for for Stranger Things season four and maybe season five. <laughs> maybe it could have been a trailer for both of those because they gave us both dates on there. So we we shall see. We shall see. Um, now I want to get into uh, the Batman. So um, now there will be probably some minor spoilers for the Batman and also the Dark Knight. But that's, of course, a pretty old movie at this point. So we're going to talk DC now, and we're going to compare the Batman interrogation scene or the Batman um, interaction between Robert Pattinson's Batman 
and Joker. This was a deleted scene. This did not appear in the actual film, but it was released by Warner Brothers after the film came out. Just a couple weeks ago, they released it. And I want to compare that to Nolan's version of when the Batman or when Batman actually interrogates Heath Ledger's Joker. We're just going to compare the two. Each each one is about five minutes, so these are not short scenes. Um, but I'll talk a little bit through throughout um, to talk a little bit more about what is going on in each of them. And I'm going to go ahead and start with the Dark Knight because this is the one that came first. So let's give a little bit of context before we jump into the scene. Let's give, give a little bit of context as to um, what happens in this scene and what's the setup. Why, why are we even seeing this scene the way that we see it? Well, first of all... Um, this is a portion of the movie where the Joker has been trying to wreak havoc in Gotham. So therefore, in Nolan's scene, the Joker is the suspect, right? Um, the Joker is the one who has answers that Batman needs. Um, and he's trying to figure out what Joker is going to do next and how Joker's, if he can prevent Joker from wreaking havoc. Um, on the city so there's a little bit different context to, to this clip than there is in the in the in the matt reeves uh deleted scene um conversation and i'll talk about that one when we get there uh but batman is perhaps entering the scene with a little bit more anger he also has a little bit more of a purpose in talking to joker directly in this particular scene than the other scene which we'll get into in a minute and i'll explain the differences between that so let's go ahead and uh let's go ahead and take a look at this scene and like i just did with the trailer i'll stop it throughout um for those of you who are just listening you'll probably be uh familiar with this scene you may or may not be familiar with the scene you can go watch it on youtube it is on youtube it's where i'm going to play it from um and I'm also going to play the Dark Knight scene from YouTube as well. So you're able to see these things. And if you go to YouTube, you can watch my video version of it as well. So let's go ahead and take a look at this. All right. Here we go. I was right here. Who did you leave him with? Mm -hmm. Your people? Assuming, of course, that they are still your people. Now, one of the things that I just had to say up front is that I don't know that we'll ever get a Joker that is as good as Heath Ledger's Joker. Now, this is a specific take on the Joker. This is more his chaotic side. This is showing how he likes to wreak chaos and then also showcasing that in wreaking chaos, what his objective is, is to prove specifically to Batman, but to Gotham in general, that trying to improve itself or trying to assume the world is not chaotic is not worth <laughs> their time. Um, so he's a, he's a very fascinating character, especially com um, when you take a look at that comparative to Batman in the Nolan series, who's all about order and trying to bring about order because he had this traumatic experience as a child where disorder caused him to have this severe trauma and he doesn't want anyone else to experience those same things in Gotham and therefore he's doing what he does. And not Maroney. 
does it depress you, Commissioner? So one of the things that, that Heath Ledger's Joker does so well is that he is causing chaos with Commissioner Gordon. Now, why, how is he doing that? He's calling into question the things he's suggesting to Gordon may or may not be true. Uh, the police department may or may not be heavily influenced by Maroney. Um, but, and also he may have, he may have had something to do with dense situation, but what he's trying to do is he's trying to seed the seeds of doubt in commissioner Gordon. So that commissioner Gordon is fearful and maybe does some things that he maybe shouldn't otherwise do. Just how alone you really are. So he's playing on his fears. I mean, this is, I mean, this is fantastic writing, by the way, he's basically saying, to a character who feels like he's fighting the good fight and the only person he can trust is a vigilante in Batman. He's basically saying, "You do you know how alone you are? The only person on your side is Batman. Everybody else may be paid out and maybe not a person that you can actually trust. Does it make you feel responsible for Harvey Dent's current predicament? Where is he? What's the time? What difference does that make? Well... Depending on the time, he may be in one spot or several. And then he subtly indicates here that he's going to <laughs> explode Harvey Dent, for lack of a better term. If we're going to play games, mm -hmm. I'm going to need a cup of coffee. Ah, the good cop, bad cop routine. Not exactly. Now this is an excellent reveal. If you if you remember how this works, <laughs> turn on the light, and then Batman just slams his head into the <laughs> to the table. Never start with the head. The victim gets all fuzzy. He can't feel the neck. And this is a very classic Batman um, scene in that how far is Batman willing to go? One of the questions that is essential in in the character of Batman is how far will he go before he's gone too far? And, you know, the, the police are not going to be willing to slam Joker's head into the ground. The police are not going to be slamming their fist into Joker's palm. Uh, but Joker, obviously, as we see, loves this kind of game in playing with Batman. See? You wanted me. Here I am. I wanted to see what you'd do. And you didn't disappoint. Now, I should note here that this is not a... a comment on the writing or the storytelling necessarily but i do prefer robert pattinson's batman suit comparative to the batman suit that christian bale had however i do prefer the joker design in nolan's batman series as opposed to the joker design that we see in um, the batman you let five people die then you let them take your place now notice what he's telling him here too. He's also playing upon Batman's fears. And he knows that Batman has certain fears um, in terms of Batman wanting to be responsible. So he's saying Harvey Dent took your place, meaning that Harvey Dent is basically dealing with the sins in Joker's eyes that Batman actually created. So Batman should have been in his place. Um and he's just playing on those little fears. I mean, this writing is is pretty outstanding from that, that perspective. Like That's cold. Where's Dan? Those mob fools want you gone so they can get back to the way things were. But I know the truth. There's no going back. You've changed things forever. And why do you want to kill me? 
<laughs> I don't, don't want to kill you. What would I do without you? Go back to ripping off mob dealers? No, no. Okay, so that is amazing. The way that he laughs um, and the way that he makes Batman think that his reasoning is completely ridiculous uh, he basically says, you know, you want, I didn't want to kill you. Like you're, you're my favorite toy. And <laughs> basically is what he's saying. Um, and this is again, uh, this is again, pretty, pretty amazing. No, no you, you complete me. You're garbage. <laughs> you kills for money. Don't talk like one of them. You're not. Even if you'd like to be. To them, you're just a freak. Like me. So there's going to be two things you're going to notice in the two scenes that we're going to take a look at. One of those things is the relationship between Batman and Joker. These are two people who are trying to understand the world in a way, and their understanding of the world is shaped by their experiences. And there is, in both scenes, this idea that they're both uncomfortable with the way that Gotham is and one of them has learned to accept it and one of them is fighting against it and you're going to see this interaction is really fascinating interaction between are we friends or are we enemies right are we do we see the world similarly do we see the world differently and how close are we and how much on the same page are we that's throughout right both now, of these scenes when they don't they'll cast you out like a leper see their morals their code. It's a bad joke. I'm dropped at the first sign of trouble. They're only as good as the world allows them to be. I'll show you. When the chips are down, these uh, these civilized people, they'll eat each other. So here's one of the we're getting in this interrogation scene. We're getting essentially the the philosophical idea that the Joker has, and that is that any sense or semblance of order is easily easy to disrupt, right? So what he's saying is that you have this police department, you know, they're super corrupt. Anything that I do is going to cause mass chaos. You just watch, they'll all turn their backs on you. And as, as human beings, I think there's this, there's this sense that we want to be a part of something and we want to be, uh, we need to be accepted. We can't be isolated. When you see isolation in human communities, it's pretty damaging um, to humans and they tend to tend to not deal with it very well. And what Joker is doing is he's playing upon that fear and he's playing upon that fear for someone who goes going out of their way to be isolated. He's literally has a secret identity. Joker, you know, on the other hand, he, he is his identity. So he doesn't care if people know him, but Batman doesn't want people to know that he's Bruce Wayne. See, I'm not a monster. I'm just ahead of the curve. Where's Dent? You have all these rules, and you think they'll save you. So when, when Joker says that, you have all these rules, and they think that you think that they'll save you, what I think part of the reason that he's saying is Batman has uh, resorted to violence to get what he wants out of Joker. And basically what Joker's saying is, I already know your rules, and you're not going to kill me. And so, therefore, go ahead and beat me up, but you still won't get what you want because you're unwilling to go as far as Joker would go. It's in control. I have one rule. Oh, then that's the rule you'll have to break to know the truth. And so there you go. There you see him saying that. I only have one rule. He doesn't kill people. And Joker's saying, well, you're going to have to kill somebody in order to know what you want to know. The only sensible way to live in this world is without rules. And tonight, you're going to break your one rule. I'm considering it. No, there's only minutes left. So you're gonna have to play my little game. 
that you want to save or and there's the key turn of that scene, right? So as you look at a narrative arc of a scene, um, this narrative arc, narrative arc of a scene is very similar to a narrative arc of a film. It's it's always going to go from uh, the inciting incident, if you will, all the way up until the climactic moment of the scene before we tail off. And this is getting to the climactic moment here where Joker has presented to Batman like, hey, this is not what you think. You're not looking for one person. You're going to have a choice you have to make. You know, for a while there... I thought you really were, Dent. The way you threw yourself after her. <laughs> the amount of strength it would take to throw someone over a table like that uh, is completely ridiculous, but it's it's good. It's entertaining. Look at you go. By the way, the soundtrack is great. It's this very grating little uh noise that's getting at like how tense the scene is and it increases as the, as the scene gets more and more tense now that would would almost certainly uh really daze joker breaking the glass that he throws him into um but <laughs> of course it's a comic book movie killing is making a choice choose between one life or the other and Joker loves this because he's causing chaos in Batman. He's literally making Batman, turning Batman into someone who's a little bit more like him. You have nothing, nothing to threaten me with. Nothing to do with all of your struggle. Don't worry, I'm going to tell you where they are. Both of them. And that's the point. You'll have to choose. He's at 252nd Street, and she's uh, on Avenue X. That's just a And there you go. There's the power of that scene. It's a phenomenal scene, um, and uh, it is a classic scene. I mean, how many times have we have we watched that movie and seen that scene and see how seen how good Heath Ledger is in that scene? Um, so, for those of you who weren't watching, hopefully you could hear the audio on that. Um, and how, and as I broke it down. Um, for those of you who were watching it, you know, it's cool memory to relive that scene. Now let's get into the other scene. So let me give a little bit of context for that scene. Um, the, the, well, let's, let me just go back to this one real quick. The crux of that scene was showcasing the difference between Batman's worldview and Joker's worldview in the context of Batman trying to save Harvey Dent. What Batman did not know, and what we did not know at the beginning of that scene, was that it wasn't just Harvey Dent that Joker had captured. It was also, uh, I believe, Rachel. Um, Rachel Dawes, I believe is her name. Um, different actress playing Rachel Dawes in Batman Begins versus The Dark Knight. Um, and then Batman has to now choose, and what Joker's trying to get him to do is choose one while the other dies so that Batman will have more of a guilt complex and be forced to deal with that. Now, the next scene that we're going to look at, let's get into context of that. Now we're going to look at the, it's not so much of an interrogation as it is an interaction between the Batman, Robert Pattinson, the Batman, and um, Joker uh, that was deleted from the Batman film. And in the context, the setup for this, this exchange is different because this exchange functions a lot more like a scene from... Uh, you know, where we might see in like Silence of the Lambs, where it's like, I need information on how a criminal mastermind thinks, and therefore I'm going to go visit 
um, Hector, uh, Hannibal Lecter, um, <laughs> just change it together, Hector, Hannibal Lecter. And I'm going to go visit Hannibal Lecter and learn how the criminal mind thinks so that I can apply that to a different case that I'm investigating. So there's a couple things here that are that are strikingly different. And this is one of the reasons why people love the Batman so much is that he's behaving far more like a detective throughout that film than in any previous Batman that we've seen in live action. So we saw just a scene where, you know, Batman is interrogating um, Joker. But he wasn't using his intelligence to do so. He was using his strength to do so. But what we're going to see here in this next film is he's actually behaving a little bit more like a detective and not so much as um, not so much as just a violent, <laughs> violent uh, person, so to speak. All right, let's take a look at this next one. All right. Hopefully the audio is a little louder on this one because I know that was kind of quiet on that one. Now, one of the things that's interesting about this whole scene is that clearly Matt Reeves wants to use Joker in a future film of some kind. And so what you're not going to see in this scene is ever a full the full face of the, of the Joker. Um, what you're going to notice in this particular scene is obviously this is filmed super cool because we can see Batman's reflection here in the background. And then we just see kind of the, the backside, if you will, of Joker. One of the things about this film that I really enjoyed, which I didn't enjoy as much as The Dark Knight, but one of the things I did enjoy about this film is how how brooding and dark it is and a lot of times how they use silence. So they use a lot of silence to the buildup of that. So we're going to, again, go through a narrative arc in this scene and the narrative arc starts out really strong. Let me know in the comments if you prefer Nolan's take on Batman and uh, and also um, Christian Bale's take on Batman versus Matt Reeves' take on Batman and Robert Pattinson's take on Batman. It is interesting that it's that his jacket is labeled Arkham State Hospital. Now, in the in what we can see in this blurry <laughs> picture of Joker is that we can see that there are some similar design elements to the character, right? He definitely has the the um, deformed lips. It looks as if it, he actually has had some sort of scarring from that. Um, there are some indications later that we'll see that it looks like he did uh, fall in acid, as was the case um, as the some of the more traditional ways that the Joker looks how he looks. There's a serial killer. I want your perspective. So why is Batman here? He wants to get his perspective on a serial killer. So he has a relationship with Joker already, and it's likely that he was involved with, like we see in the comics, he was likely involved in some way with the Joker actually falling into the acid, and he must have some relationship here. So again, just like the first clip, 
we are dealing with Batman has a relationship with the Joker where there's tension there, but there's also an understanding of what the other person's perspective actually is. First anniversary and paper. Why makes you think I come so cheap? I thought you'd be curious. You think I could offer this stuff? Don't you? So Joker's obviously trying to act exceedingly creepy here. Um, this film treats its bad guys a little bit less. So if you look at the Riddler or if you look at Joker in this scene, these are treated like total psychopathic serial killer type of uh, personas that are incredibly disturbing. Now, you could make the argument that Joker in Nolan's series is all of those things, but what it seems a little bit more like is that it is actually a philosophy that if it was embodied by a person, that's what it would look like, right? So this this uh, nihilistic um, viewpoint in Nolan's Joker, whereas this seems like a very creepy human being who is not necessarily the philosophical embodiment of a perspective <laughs> so much as just a very creepy human. And that's kind of how Riddler feels as well. They have very human reasons to act the way that they do. Uh, not so much just philosophical reasons for acting the way that they do. And here we see, you know, it's not as blurry, so we can see a lot of the scarring, again, probably from acid. Now Joker's just looking through the evidence that Batman is presenting. So Batman has actually shown up and he's given Joker some of the evidence. So whereas in the first scene, Batman is trying to solve a potential crime or trying to understand Joker a little bit better. In this scene, Batman has a very specific objective that is not actually tied to the Joker at all. He just wants his perspective on it. It's violence. So So this is interesting. Um, he's talking about how the Riddler is is a planner, and we know that that was a that was like a big thing philosophically between. Um, Heath Ledger's Joker and Christian Bale's Batman was how much planning there was. And he used those terms. And it's interesting to see this Joker call that out about the Riddler, that he's a planner. I know who he is. Huh. Yeah. 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 He's a nobody. Wants to be somebody. So this is interesting because one of the things that Joker says is, I know who he is. He's a nobody that wants to be a somebody. And this gives a lot of vibes, a lot of real life vibes and makes this scene so uncomfortable is because that's a lot of times what we see when we see something like um, a very disturbed mass shooter. It's an, it's really somebody who's been marginalized, who really is fighting back against that to become a somebody to be put their name in the papers. Um, and 
it makes this scene even a little bit creepier, uh, which is really interesting. Yeah. He's got ambition. You think his motive is political? Oh, no, no, no. This is very, very personal. He feels these people have all wronged him. Probably goes way back. Unhealed wounds, stolen ones, money. Why is he writing to me? So this is interesting because Joker, you know, Batman's getting what he wanted out of Joker, which is I want to understand the persona of the person that I'm going after, which is the Riddler. And, um, you know, he's giving him a psychological profile for the for the Riddler, which is really fascinating. Maybe he's a fan of yours. Now, we don't know when what part of the movie this would have shown up. Right. But what's interesting is that if you've seen the film, then you know that the Riddler is a big fan of Batman's. And the Riddler feels like he and Batman could be friends because their objective is the same, and that is to root out corruption in the city. The only difference between Batman and Riddler in the Batman is that Batman has a rule where he's not going to kill people, and the Riddler doesn't care. But otherwise, there's not a huge difference. Now, you could argue that Riddler is ensuing chaos as opposed to bringing about order you can make that argument as well but there's it makes sense that they would feel similar maybe he's got a grudge against you too maybe you're the main cause any theories not yet really you're normally so ahead of the curve <laughs> The, the uh, closed captions are not great on this video. He said, normally you're ahead of the curb, and the closed captions said he was headless. <laughs> this is different. Funny. This time. This is very upsetting to you. Let's get back to it. So what's interesting about this is uh, this is not a Batman origin story, and you can see that Joker's pointing that out because he's saying, normally you're so ahead of the curve. This is very upsetting to you, uh, meaning that he has done this multiple times. Batman has investigated a lot of things in the past, and Joker knows about that, but he knows that this is treating Batman differently, which is some backstory that we never really get in this film, except in this scene, which is, of course, deleted. <laughs> you are so much more fun. I'm not here to talk about me. What are you here to talk about? I want to know how he thinks. You know exactly how he thinks. Have you read this file? You two have so much in common. And here again, we see... Joker is playing upon Batman's fears. So Batman's saying, I want to know how he thinks. How am I supposed to know how he thinks? And Joker's saying back to him, you know how he thinks because he's you, man. He's he's very similar to you. Uh, you have a lot of the same <laughs> desires and a lot of the same ways of behaving. And again, he's just kind of subtly hinting at Batman that maybe Batman is on the wrong path. Avengers. So he's even more righteous. <laughs> Just terrified. Because you're not sure he's wrong, huh? 
You think they deserve it. <laughs> you think they deserve it. <laughs> and again, the, that basic scene is suggesting that he's trying to play upon Batman's fears and he's because Batman probably does think that to a certain degree that they deserved it right um and that's the difference is that Batman's trying to bring about justice so that he can bring about order in the city but sometimes justice looks like um people getting what they deserve and so but with Joker's basically poking him and saying like maybe you're more of a criminal than you think you are which is the exact same thing that the other Joker was trying to prove to him and is sort of quintessential in the Batman Joker relationship <laughs> and that's basically it that's basically the scene so two uh outstanding scenes from two very good movies. I prefer The Dark Knight. There are some issues that I have with the ending of the way that the Batman ended. You can go watch my video on my other channel about my thoughts on that. But uh, again, two really, really cool scenes. Let me know which scene you preferred. I think each one fits the movie really well. Each one fits the movie. Obviously, the, the Batman, it would have been in the Batman. It wasn't because it was removed. Um, but yeah, really, really interesting stuff. Really, really good scenes. And um, both being very talented directors behind them. And I also think that, you know, the that scene was excluded from the movie, but actually makes a lot of sense to be included in the movie. So the only reason it was probably excluded was just that, that movie was so long. I believe the running time of that movie is already over two hours and 40 minutes. And so they had to cut that particular scene, even though I don't think it was a bad scene to cut. Now, I have heard some people have a valid complaint, like my buddy Daryl. Daryl said, you know, why do we have to have the Joker again? Can we can we can we move away from the Joker? We have had every single Batman story of all time seems to indicate that we have to have a Joker. So with that in mind, let me know what you think of those things. I'm going to jump into now um, episode three of Moon Knight. Now, episode three of Moon Knight was an interesting one because it was my least favorite episode of the series thus far so let's talk through a little bit of it and talk about why that is i did think it was fascinating because before a lot of people were given an early screener of moon knight and they in that in those screeners they were able to see the first four episodes so we've seen now the first three episodes um i don't get any screeners um and a lot of people were saying that the show was about a four out of five four out of five stars in fact, I saw that from several people. And I thought that was kind of interesting because a lot of people would have given the other Marvel series, you know, four four out of five or higher. And a lot of the Marvel series that, that existed thus far have been received really, really well. And so I kind of was thinking to myself, like, especially after the first, I watched the first episode and I thought, well, this is a five out of five episode, episode one. I watched episode two and I thought, well, this is probably about, you know, four and a half out of five episode. It's a pretty good episode. Now I watch this episode and I go, okay, I get it. This is probably more like a three out of five episode. It's not the best episode. Honestly, what it felt like to me was it felt like a 50-minute episode that should have been two separate 40-minute episodes because they did three or four big things during this particular episode. Um, and by the way, I am going to spoil this. So just heads up, I'm going to be spoiling episode three of uh moon knight um we had we had the scene where all of the avatars of the egyptian gods are meeting therefore the egyptian gods are all meeting in um in the pyramid of giza um 
we had that scene, which was a big scene. Could have been the end. It could have been like a climactic scene reveal. We also had the scene where Khonshu and um, and I believe it's actually Stephen, if I'm remembering it correctly. But Khonshu and Stephen turned the the um, the sky backwards so that it can see what the sky would have looked, what the night sky would have looked like two thousand years prior. Those are two pretty big events happening in one episode and it felt like those two things could have been separated up into two different episodes but um and that's why i think it suffered a little bit but let's go ahead and get into it a little bit more because there's some things that we learn in this episode that are pretty interesting so the first thing we learn is that layla deals with black market egyptian goods so that's we get a little bit more of information about her persona we also know that her father was an archaeologist. Her father is basically Indiana Jones <laughs> when it comes down to it. And I think we're going to learn more about him. And I think there's going to be a little bit more Indiana Jones quality to her father based on the hints that they're giving us in episode three. And she's also she's in this in this scene. She's forging a passport to Egypt. So if we had thought previously that Layla was sort of an innocent party in this whole thing, she's really not. She's not um, obeying the laws, so to speak. So that's an interesting side of Layla's character in Moon Knight that that presents her with some more compelling reasons to tag along. She's not just um, she's not just she actually has a region a reason to be there. She actually has a lot of agency, and she's a much more interesting character now that we get that basically that opening scene of Moon Knight episode three where she's I don't know if that lady is her mom. I don't think so, but. Um, her building the forged passport with her with that lady is kind of really really fascinating never before has mark specter felt like poe dameron <laughs> than in this episode of moon knight he really he really feels like poe dameron there's a moment in the night in the knife fight where he goes what are we doing are we we fighting are we dancing that was like a poe dameron line and i, I kind of like that i thought that was kind of cool um but this episode does showcase that there are now more personalities to Moon Knight than we had previously known. We have Stephen Grant, the mild-mannered, non-violent, amateur Egyptian scholar, and they portray him as a very subservient, very gentle uh, British character. Then we have Mark Spector, a practical, let's get things done, action-driven guy, which is portrayed as an American personality, which I found really interesting. And then there's this ultra-violent third character who we technically have not met yet, um, I believe that character is in some of the comic versions of Moon Knight. So people who have read those and who have a background in that will probably know who that character is. Um, but we as viewers of the show who have not read the comics don't know who that is yet. We just know that there's a character that is much more diabolical um, in his behavior. Because Mark Spector is willing to do a lot of things, but we continually see Mark pull back from doing something that is truly heinous so for example he's very willing to fight all three guys in the knife fight but he's shocked when he kills one of them and then he's extremely disappointed in Kanchu when um the younger fighter the boy fighter i guess he looked a little older than a boy to me but you know the the, the younger guy um cuts the his own um his own scarf and falls back off the cliff. Mark seems pretty terrified of that because he was, he took Conchu's advice and said, if you just hold him over the, over the edge of the cliff, he'll, he'll talk. And of course he doesn't. 
And by the way, Khonshu doesn't seem very like a very good guy because Khonshu does not care that that character died. Does not care at all. Um, he just kind of says, like, who who cares? Big deal. So Khonshu continues, continues to be a problem. We predicted that from episode one on this show. We said Khonshu is not a good guy, and it's going to continually be problematic, and that has been continually true. So we've been right on that on that front. Now, um, in the scene where we see all of the gods and avatars gathered, that presents us with some pretty interesting questions. Um, the first question is, um, why can the gods not be present without the use of an avatar? We don't know that. Um, I have not heard of that concept in Egyptian mythology. Now, I will say I'm not an Egyptian scholar of any kind, so maybe that is a concept that is frequently utilized. What we do see is that their avatars... This is the first time we've really seen this. Like what we've seen in Moon Knight prior is that it felt like they could be indicating that there was some sort of possession. But then we also saw that, you know, Mark was able to, and even Steven were able to call on the suit. They called it summoning the suit, which he does several times. And it's a healing, it's a healing suit that can cause him to heal himself. I don't know how much Khonshu is controlling Mark or Steven when the suit is on them. I don't know what that means. But in this scene where the avatars go into the Temple of Giza or the Pyramid of Giza to have a discussion about Arthur Harrow and what Arthur, Arthur Harrow is doing, this is where possession is uh, readily apparent. The gods are speaking to one another through their avatars. In fact, um, you know, Oscar Isaac is doing his best impersonation of Kanchu um, when he's speaking, when Kanchu's speaking through him. They bring in Arthur Harrow. They have a conversation about what's going on. Um, that was probably, from a possession standpoint, probably the creepiest portion of the show that we've seen thus far. Because the idea is, you know, uh, is there such a thing as possession, spiritual possession of some kind? This show is suggesting that there is and that the Egyptian gods can do that. I don't think that we've seen that in the Marvel Cinematic Universe prior to this. We've seen some, you know, people with, let's say, mental illness who do some things they don't want to do. We've seen some uh, some very human things like Bruce Banner, uh, who has temper tantrums and turns into the Hulk. Um, so those are very human like metaphors. This is the first time that we're actually seeing possession of a spirit, possession of an of a earthly being by a spiritual being. And that is. um that is pretty interesting to see in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And it's a really good deep discussion that we could get into because how do we how how do we think of possession today? I mean, there's multiple ways to look at it. Everything from, you know, there are people who talk about possession being like demonic possession. You see a lot of movies about demonic possession where there is a uh, spiritual entity that does not have good things in store for the person and they're possessing the person and having them do, you know, horrific things. Um, that is a really interesting take on, I mean, that's a general Western take on spiritual possession. If you were just to watch movies is that the demonic entities exist to take over a human body and then do a bunch of bad things. And, that seems like a an interesting interpretation, quite frankly, a strange interpretation of what you might say the Bible deals with when it deals with spiritual possession. Now, that's not to say that there aren't some elements of the Bible's spiritual possession that are 
similar in nature, but, and, and, and I don't, I haven't studied what uh, Islam would say about spiritual possession. So that would be an interesting thing to hear from if you're, if you are of an Islamic faith or know about Islamic faith, if you could let us know what spiritual possession looks like from that perspective, if there is such a thing. But a lot of times, you know, from a biblical perspective, spiritual possession is more along the lines of it causes physical ailments. It causes maybe uh, mental ailments, but you always have to ask yourself a question of like, well, what is the goal of the, of the person who's, um, of the, of the possessor of the, of the demon in this case. Right. And that's always an interesting question to ask. And I don't know that there's a good answer and I don't know that we're always given a good answer, but I think what you'd have to say from a Judeo Christian standpoint is that it's not like the devil or demons have a purpose to make humans miserable. That doesn't make a lot of sense. In fact, making humans extremely comfortable in a way where they would not think about God seems like a more effective tactic than just making their lives miserable. Um, and if, and if, and if, there's some reason they're trying to possess people so that they can get, um, you know, some level of worship or some level of interaction or something. Um, again, making people's lives completely miserable um, seems like an odd technique. Now, if you said to me, you know, uh, spiritual entities try to work through addiction, try to work toward through temptations to to then those things will drive you away from God, then that would make a lot more sense to me. In this case, what we're seeing in Moon Knight is that the possession uh, is still a little bit convoluted because we we know that um, we know that uh, the only person we've seen, the only people we've seen possessed, are the avatars of the gods who are not, um, you know, uh, exiled, right? Because like because like uh, Arthur Harrow is not possessed by Amit; um, he's just working on her behalf. But the but the gods that are possessing the people are seemingly trying to keep the peace and not disrupt too many things. And that's one of the reasons why they're upset with Khonshu is because he's sort of upsetting the balance. He's he's already caused a massive eclipse, which means that there's more attention that's drawn to the Egyptian gods. And there seems to be an indication that they don't want that attention, which is pretty interesting. So they're trying to do whatever they can, but they may not be influencing the world you know, like they used to in ancient Egypt. So all of those things are fascinating. And, you know, we'll see what that, what comes about later in this series about what happens there. Um, uh, getting into the, the scenes after that, we see Layla and Mark visit the black market dealer. I did not love that sequence either. That also felt like a really rushed sequence to me. There were moments of that sequence that felt like they were trying to um, up the tension a little bit more, uh, but that, just didn't seem it just seemed rushed it felt like there's probably a scene that's twice as long on the cutting room floor that would have been even more compelling um in those in those kind of contexts like for example the pacing is such that when they show up there's a lot of time spent showcasing that there's the shirtless guy on a horse with with you know playing with spears and you know it's kind of like okay you spend a, a, quite a bit of time on that wherein the tension leading up to the big fight after they look in the sarcophagus uh, actually felt a little bit rushed to me. And it felt like they could have drawn that tension out, drawn that suspension out a little bit longer. So um, again, two ep if, this, if this episode had been two episodes instead, I think that would have been a lot better. But 50 minutes is a long episode for a 
Marvel series. Both Marvel and Star Wars have kept their series episodes usually to about 35 to 45 minutes. So an extra five minutes on top of that is long, and it felt like it was almost leading up to two separate episodes. And maybe they thought, well, this isn't moving fast enough, so we've got to put those two episodes together. And they did that in the editing room. I don't know, but I would not be surprised if that were true. There are some implications here that I think are going to be really interesting to the character of Mark Spector, because the implication in this show is that Mark had something to do with Layla's dad's death. Now, my assumption or my prediction, I could be totally wrong about this, but I'm starting to wonder if Conchu isn't the one who I think Mark was probably working with Layla's dad. They were they found some Egyptian artifacts. They may even have unleashed Conchu from some sort of sarcophagus or unleashed his presence. And I'm thinking that what happened is Conchu did something that almost killed both of them. And then Mark said, okay, well, then I'll take on the role of Moon Knight if you save me. So either Layla's dad had was accessing the powers of Khonshu, or they discovered Khonshu together. Either way, by Mark choosing to take on the Moon Knight role, he saved himself but was not able to save her father. Something along those lines is, I feel like, maybe what happened um to Layla's father and Mark doesn't want to talk about that because he carries a lot of guilt in being the one that saved himself by agreeing to what Kanchu wanted the, we also know that there is some relation because Kanchu has already told Mark that he would be that he would have Layla be his avatar next and Mark doesn't want that to happen so there's some connectivity there that we don't fully know but I think it's related to something along those lines um, then we get the, the, basically the end scene, if you will, where Kanchu is turned to stone. They're turning the sky back so they can find Amit's resting place, um, which they get from the sarcophagus, uh, in Egypt. And that's when the Ennead says, you know what, Kanchu, you're doing too much. You're disrupting the balance of everything. I mean, he's doing things at this point that are going to get the attention of S.H.I.E.L.D. Then to get to get the attention of the Avengers. Like you can't just turn the sky backwards. And not expect S.H.I.E.L.D. to be like, what in the world is going on here, right? So he's doing things that are going to draw attention to Egypt and the Egyptian gods. And the Egyptian gods do not like that very much. What's really fascinating to me here is that episode four of Moon Knight, um, you know, Moon Knight, the armor is not going to be available because Kanchu is not available. Kanchu is removed from this whole scene. So that is going to be a really fascinating aspect of this show that we'll have to see more about um as we go into episode four and then i think we have six episode series total so we've only we're halfway through and there and right now moon knight is off the table <laughs> so we'll have to see how that works and we'll also have to see with moon knight being off the table what happens with mark's personalities do these personalities still shift in and out or is that something that is kind of dictated by um by moon knight by Kanchu? I'm, I'm not really sure so there you go. There's the there's the breakdown of, of episode three. And with that, I'm going to go ahead and close out the show. So that is it for today's show. I do want to get back into reading more from my books, but I'll have to save that for next week because I got plenty of other things to talk about and discuss. And uh, and we're going to just keep going through those. <laughs> and then whenever I get time, I'll, I'll do the, the book reading. New episodes of the Story Geek Show come out every Tuesday and Thursday. This coming Tuesday, April 19th, I will be joined by Dale Wentland. You've heard Dale on a lot of the shows. He's comments live, which we're really grateful for. 
Um, he's a former co-host over at Network 1901. And the two of us will be digging deeper into episodes two and three of Tokyo Vice. If you listen to Mike and I's conversation about Tokyo Vice, you know that I really enjoyed it. And I think Dale will have some really important things to bring to the table in that particular episode. Subscribe to the Story Geeks show on YouTube or on your preferred podcast provider. We should be available on just about every podcast provider you can listen to. And episodes are published to the podcast feed right after I finish recording them on YouTube. Leave me a comment and let me know what you thought about episode three of Moon Knight, the Batman comparison I did, or even the trailer for season four of Stranger Things. I will see you on Thursday. Bye.